Payback Time is a podcast about building businesses, wealth, and financial freedom. We try to uncover the challenges our guests faced, the mistakes they made, and the steps they took to achieve their goals. The overall objective is to provide you with a roadmap that leads to your own success. Sean Tepper is your host. Are you ready? It's payback time. My next guest left his executive position at Morgan Stanley to start a private equity firm that generates passive income for his customers. In this episode, he talks about the asset classes he invests in, the average returns, and the minimum investment size. Please welcome Dana Cornell. Dana, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, good to have you here. So why don't you kick us off and tell us about your background? Absolutely. So, you know, I grew up a town about an hour south of Buffalo, New York. You know, I always tell that story when people ask of where I started because I think it's it's relevant to where I ended up. So I started, my father's an excavation contractor. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. Grew up pretty, um, pretty normal, but, you know, it's a lower middle class area. Came out of college, decided to try financial advising as a career choice and started knocking on doors. I started knocking on about 1,800 doors by the time I was done doing that because I didn't come from a network that knew about wealth. Um, Certainly didn't grow up in that crowd of a country club or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I credit that to my parents, just knowing how to work hard, but also knowing I needed to learn that skill set. So tried that, got out to a quick start. Like I say, knocked on a bunch of doors in the winter of Western New York. And uh, fast forward, I ended up at Morgan Stanley um, until about a year and a half ago. Um, when I was there, I managed about 1.3, 1.4 billion in in private client wow. assets that ranged from a multitude of sides of accounts and households. Um, left that and started a smaller private equity firm that focuses on commercial real estate and some small business investment offerings. So that's a, a very quick, high level version of my last 25 years. Thank you for sharing that. And I briefly want to ask a few questions here about your business, and then we'll jump into your journey yeah. in the stock market. So right now you run a PDE a PE firm, is that correct? It is. Yeah. I mean, essentially what I do is offer private uh, access to private investments in commercial real estate and small business ownership. So I'll bring, um, it's called syndication. I'll bring a group of 10 or 20 investors um, that are the right fit to those type of projects that complement your traditional stock and bond investments. Got it. Now, do you typically work with accredited investors or is this open to anybody? For the most part, it's accredited. We do have some offerings that are open to non-accredited, but it really is uh, meant for a, a portion of an accredited portfolio. Got it. And is it really focused on real estate or do you focus a little more broad? Um, mostly all, all asset classes of real estate. So the way I've positioned it is I'm, I'm more or less a guide or intermediary. In some ways, probably similar to your, your core business. Um, helping them find the right developers, the right projects, doing the due diligence that you know the average investor didn't doesn't have time to, or doesn't have the team to, or the skill set to, or the desire to, and then helping them profile where they should fit and match them to the right style of project. Gotcha. I have to ask, since you were, you know, you had a pretty cushy position there, managing over a billion dollar in assets, to make this move to. This is a completely different audience. Well, I shouldn't yeah. say completely. It can vary, right? You're very sure. primarily focused on accredited investors. Um, I know you said you you do have alternatives there for those who don't qualify, but yeah, and just focused on real estate. Why did you make this switch? 
You know, so I, um, quite honestly, you're right. I mean, I was an executive director under the age of 40 at Morgan Stanley. It's a pretty comfortable career path when you reach that and the amount of assets that I had. Um, honestly, I was just fed up with the way the corporate side of wealth management was treating clients and specifically, of course, my clients. I just didn't feel good about what I was doing for people. I had started investing in alternative investments myself over the last five, six years before I had left the firm. And I had started to get to know an audience that really had built their wealth in that manner, um, which was similar to what I was doing. I mean, I'm a financial planner by trade, so I was pretty traditional wealth management. But saw the advantages of that and really started to take a look at what was I doing for people and how much of an impact was I making and was I doing the best I could possibly do or was I just doing the best that my firm kind of allowed me to do, so to speak. So sure. COVID hit. I took a hard look at that and had two little kids at home. I said, man, I really want them to be proud of what dad did, not just his title on his business card, you know? So. Sure. You know, did some soul searching and just decided to walk away from that. And to your question, the first question that I got back was, "Did I need? Uh, did I need mental health counseling? Was I okay?" And I said, uh, "Which jury's still out on that, probably." But yes, and in that context, <laughs> I was fine. And I just, you know, had a had a different calling at this point. So yeah, it was sure. a big leap to go do that, but it's been fulfilling. That's that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And and I know running a PE firm is a little more flexible. Like you, you can kind of pick the projects and the, and the products you want to um, present to your customers. Whereas at Morgan Stanley, I'm sure they kind of lay out your options and, and here you go, go sell. That's it. They do. Yeah. I mean, it goes so many layers deeper. I mean, that's why, you know, sometimes these conversations go to what's, what should an investor, I'm happy to talk about that. What should an investor really be looking into? Right. Um, you know, they try and paint a picture that not a lot is proprietary, but there's always some sort of kickback somewhere um, to the detriment of the client. Um, mm. You know, when I'm trained as a CFP in SEMA and in the mindset of being a, a fiduciary, I didn't have that option based on the business model, right? Which, you know, the, that's a business model built for a corporation that has shareholders. It's not built for the clients that they serve, in my, my humble opinion. Um, others would certainly disagree mm-hmm. with that, but that just is what I felt like. And then on top of that, you know, trying to be all things to all people per that business model, you know, you can't be everyone's insurance guru, their lending specialist, their asset allocation, their financial planning, their estate right. planning, you know, long-term, you name it. They say they have experts in those spaces. That wasn't my experience. So I just said, I can do this a different way. I can sure. go out and build build things that people wouldn't have access to normally. And I can go out and partner with the best people I can find in that respective category. So when somebody comes to me and says, Hey, I need help with my estate planning or my insurance, right? Somebody that truly knows that market, not just how to add on that service to an asset allocation or, you know, financial plan. Sure. Sure. There's a hot topic point. I I think uh, you have a lot of fun with and our audience wants to hear, which is, uh, and discussing the traditional investments advisors don't want you to know. Yeah. So there's a couple of things there, right? So what I would caution people and I've spoke a lot on is, you know, really take a look. And I, I do have a lot of fun asking people with a traditional portfolio and full disclosure, this used to be my portfolio, right? If you're a former client of mine, I would challenge people to ask if they know what are their top 10 holdings in their portfolio. And then I would go a step further and challenge 
them to ask their advisor what are their top 10 holdings in their portfolio. Mm. I think people will be shocked how many advisors without looking it up can actually ask that, answer right. that, you know? So then it begs the question, right? Who is that portfolio built for? Is it built for the individual or is it built for that institution, right? And you can go down that rabbit hole. You really start looking at, you know, mutual funds and the revenue share that goes back to the firm and who pays more is on the top of the list and all of that stuff. And then you look at how the firms actually invest their money, which is private equity, private real estate, private right. debt. Kind of start to wonder. And that's what happened to me. I started digging deeper and deeper. And that's interesting. Yep. Why does this firm who's recommending this, this, and this have their money invested somewhere else? You know? So yep. yeah, we could do 10 shows on all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's, I, uh, it's fun. Gets me in trouble sometimes, but it's fun. I, I love it. And I, I know our audience loves this conversation too. We do have uh, a few financial advisors and wealth managers that use Ticker and, and we've had a few of those professionals on the show and even they will agree with you there. Like there's a lot of people in that space that they don't even know what they're selling you, what what kind of businesses yeah. you're going into. I, I knew of a firm that they were so focused on life insurance because it provided 80% commission. They didn't sure. care about putting you in any kind of businesses like investments, um, ETFs, index funds, or mutual funds, they wanted to sell you life insurance because it made them the biggest dollar. It just, it made me sick to my stomach when I found out they got 80% commission. Like if you were to go to like a a car dealership and you're about to buy a car and you find out that that person gets 80% commission, you'd you'd roll over. You'd be like, you kidding me? You know, it's, it's crazy. And it, by all means, it's not, it's certainly not a blanket statement on advisors themselves, right? right. There are excellent Correct. advisors out there in, in a warehouse setting outside of it doesn't matter. But I will say to your point, right? It's positioned as, Hey, we're going to make your business easy. You plug in, you build relationships. We're going to take care of the rest. Most people don't scratch beneath the surface that, that far, right? What's happening is things are strategically placed to make you think your business is being made easy. It's just so happens it benefits everybody else besides the client. Right. Right. If you have some sort of conscious and you know that, right. It's one thing if you're in the dark about it and don't know, it's another thing if you know about it and then Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? Stay there and continue to collect that paycheck because it, you know, advisors are paid well, right. I mean, they're essentially selling trust. So that was something I just couldn't, couldn't live with. So, you know, I, and thank you for diving into this a little deeper. It's really good to know the why behind starting your own business, a slightly dip, a, a little bit of a pivot from what you were doing at Morgan Stanley, but a really cool product. We've had a lot of real estate investors on this show. So it is a, it's a hot topic and it's a great asset class to build wealth and reoccurring revenue. We've got investors in the show that they love investing in stocks for the compounding growth, but sure. then they'll go over to real estate to generate the reoccurring revenue. Absolutely. Um, right. Yep. Um, what what I'd like to do next is transition to your personal journey getting into the stock market. So when did you start investing in the stock market? Yeah. So interesting timing. So it just so happens, right? And I mentioned earlier in the show, I, I didn't come from money, didn't have right. a, a huge background in that. Um, just started getting out, you know, first job was in finance, but just started to make a little bit of money that I had a few extra bucks. I started investing and started bringing on clients the end of 2007. So I went right into 2008 downturn, 2009. <laughs> um, so I was very fortunate because I started investing basically at the bottom of that market, yeah, right? Which was very interesting for me because 
I was on one side of the spectrum. The luck of good timing on my part was to the detriment of most of the people I was working with. Right. And I saw that fear. I mean, that's something you don't forget when you start out. That's really your first year working with people as a young guy trying to figure out, man, these people are worried if they can actually retire now or what does this do to their life and they can't quantify it. Right. That's, that's something you don't forget. And that was a big part of why I've always kind of had a little bit of a different mindset. Yeah. You know, so it was kind of bittersweet on both sides. I was benefiting from that. Mm -hmm. A few Mm -hmm. clients that had cash benefited along the way, of course, but a lot of people, you know, that was, that's still top of mind for a lot of people that I talked to, you know, that that lived through that. So, yeah, so I started investing in stocks then, did the traditional kind of dollar cost average, which, you know, is tried and true as a strategy, of course. Yep. Then I started buying individual names because I like to know what I own. I think it was uh, Rockefeller that said, which is an extreme to a sense, right? But he said, don't spread your eggs out in too many baskets. Put your eggs in one basket and wash that basket, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. You can fit a few eggs in one basket and watch that basket. So that's kind of how I always invested myself. And that's how I manage money, right? I mean, we can go through the modern portfolio theory of when diversification is essentially eroded after about 30 stocks, you know? Yes. So that's kind of how I, I use that philosophy. And it worked really well for me personally, benefit mm-hmm. from good timing. Um, and it worked for my clients through the years as well. So that's kind of how I started. And what was your strategy? What, like, what type of companies did you look at and why? I was always, you know, I came from a two mentors that were big in the American funds portfolios, mutual fund portfolios, which, you know, I mean, if you really strip those down, those are good blue chip companies that pay rising dividends in a lot of cases. So that story made sense. It had made clients before me a ton of money. So I just kind of stuck with that, you know, built on that. I mean, we're a little more concentrated than the full fund when it made sense, but I really did that. Mm -hmm. And when you got started, do you recall what kind of dollar amount did you start with? This is a great question for our our beginners in the audience. Oh, yeah. Geez. I mean, I, you know, obviously I was trained in all the traditional results and everything. I mean, the reality is I always did as much as I could comfortably afford. I think my first few paychecks, I put $250 a month away, you know, just trying to scale it up as much as I could as time went on. And what is your investment strategy today just with the stock market? Let's focus on that. And then I would, let's dovetail back over to your business since it's focused in real estate. With stocks, what do you focus on? Yep. So I am very, um, I I tend to follow advice that looks at more bigger picture economic trends. And I do think that things might have changed in the sense that markets are more efficient these days. So I do a lot of indexing. And then I'll kind of complement that as a core satellite strategy with some more thematic certain tech stocks, certain things that I think have a a unique competitive advantage to Mm -hmm. kind of outpace, you know, the general markets. But I try and be very, quite honestly, I just try and be very cost efficient and just match market returns with a little bit of outperformance from a handful of names on the stock side. Sure. And what kind of stocks do you currently own? Um, again, mostly index, um, okay. you know, but things like Tesla, you know, those types of names where they're kind of disruptors in their marketplace, yeah. you know, that's that. But I would say, you know, to be fair, most of my wealth has transitioned from traditional investments to, you know, more private investments than what I've done now. Gotcha. Okay. Let's talk about that. So with the private investments, 
give us a context of what did you invest in? And, and then we'll go into in a little bit what kind of returns. Yeah. So, you know, it, it kind of stems back to that contrast of me investing in 2008 versus some of my, you know, more seasoned clients as far as how much money they had. What I realized and really started to study was how much the consistency of return mattered. So we're always trained as an advisor, you're trained to talk in averages, historical returns, which does not typically match your dollars and cents on your statement. So you can have the same average is what I mean by that. But if your timing was different of when you entered that, you can have drastically different results. So I started to look at what gives me consistent returns one and then has you know the ability to appreciate on the upside. So that led me down a path of, you know, I think it's interesting that we try and save. And I always got that question. What's your, what's your number? What should my number be? Sure. You know, what's the pile of money I need to save to somehow someday turn on income to live the rest of my life. It's kind of this gray blind spot for a lot of investors. So we shoot that number high and project investment returns low and all that kind of good stuff to, you know, build in some assurances there. I just started talking about why don't we just reverse your financial plan? Why don't we buy your time back now? So I focused on a lot of high income paying investments and that's what led me to real estate initially, then private business, so on and so forth. So that's, that's really what I make up the majority of my personal wealth with private real estate. It's mm-hmm. paying consistent income, very tax efficiently, um, some private business investment that does the same thing and then has the ability to appreciate on the backside, you know, when there's a liquidity event there. Yes. Yes. I, I like it. So let's dive into real estate a little bit first. Then I want to talk talk about the businesses as well. These private businesses, so real estate. Are you talking about like um, upfront investment, and then your customers and you are getting a reoccurring revenue stream yeah. every month? Yeah, I'll give you an example. So we just launched the self storage investment, new self storage project. They paid. This one's a little bit higher income. Usually, you can get seven to ten percent. Is is pretty mm-hmm. typical on my side. This pays ten percent very tax efficiently annually, chopped up and paid out in monthly income. And then once the property is turned around, kind of value added, so to speak, they will reposition that property, sell out, you get your money back, plus the appreciation of the asset. Mm. So you have some security there because it's a physical asset. You know, you can go see it, feel it, touch it, right? You understand how it works. So there's a mental piece of that that's also reassuring to people. You're getting monthly tax advantage income, that was higher than what most people have averaged, even with the, the bull market. Right. Um, and then you get some upside appreciation. So, you know, I mean, you're looking at returns at 12 to sometimes 20% over a three-year period, you know? So yes. when I figured that out and then I figured, geez, with that type of income, I can replace your income with much less of your assets. It takes all the pressure off that, right? Which then in turn of your stock portfolio, because you do need liquidity, right? I'm not saying yeah. by any means you shouldn't be invested in stocks but you need some liquidity for that. Um, it helps you weather those storms because that's sure. when people really get concerned. And at least in my experience is when your income is disrupted and you need it to live on. Yes. Well, I can do that with 30% of your assets where it used to take me 80%. So yeah. that's a game changer. What I'm looking at, I want to use some larger numbers or a larger number. And then a scenario, like let's say you're, you're a little older, you've accumulated some wealth and you want to put your money into this vehicle as opposed to the stock market and ride those waves up and down. Sure. You can make some great returns, but like right now you would, you would be um, unrealized gains would be really low. You don't want to sell. Of course you'd see like, Oh my gosh, I'm down 50% or more, but 
let's say you put a million dollars in, you would, it sounds like you'd be making a hundred grand, 10% per year. Of course, those payments are broken out. It sounds like if it's not monthly, it's maybe quarterly. Is that correct? Yep. Quarterly, usually monthly. I try and give monthly income. People like that, but yes, monthly or quarterly. Yep. And, And then let's say it's this, I like storage unit investments because it's like, there's not a lot of uh, maintenance there, from my perspective, at least. You've got aluminum structures with... Yeah. with <laughs> very with, efficient asset class. Yes, yes, good. with not a lot of maintenance. And they're right next to each other, all at the same location. And let's say you your initial investment was that million. And let's say it's sold. Like somebody, somebody came in and it's like, hey, I really want to buy this. So you're saying you could make another 20, 30% on top of yes. that? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So they're either buying, think of it as like an apartment complex that you can renovate the apartments and raise rents, add more units. That's a typical value add strategy for self-storage Yep. Um, because that particular subset of the real estate market is very interesting. 70% of it is still owned by the mom and pop operator. Yeah. Right. So very different than every other type of real estate. So there's a lot of room to come in and make things more efficient. Um, Yeah. Scale, add on more, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, like but it. yes, that's exactly what happens. So you're getting your current income and then you're getting appreciation from the add-ons, the value adds, as they say, to increase the value of that. Yeah. And it's a very, very efficient asset class to run in, in terms of the self-storage in particular. So, yes. yeah, and it's a very hot market because a lot of the bigger players, the few publicly traded guys want to absorb the mom and pop markets. Mm. But they don't want to go one by one by one, right? They want to buy a portfolio of 20 properties. So it fits well for a middle market size company to come in and kind of be an aggregator in the middle there. Sure. Or if you're doing new development, we do a lot of new development as well. With the amount of population that's migrated to certain states, certain areas of the country, there's so much demand and housing ch- demographics are changing. So sure. long story short, there's a multitude of reasons that you know, self-storage makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's essentially why you get very consistent returns in that that particular yeah. uh, category of an asset. And 2008, it was down 4%, which I always liked that too when I started out with this. Sure, so, sure, yeah. Pretty consistent. To your audience, what is your minimum investment amount that you require? Yeah, so on, on this, they vary. Um, it's either usually 50,000 or 100,000. Okay. Most have to be accredited investors. Um, the project we have open right now, that's a self-storage in Texas. That's a 50,000 minimum, um, typically 100,000 though. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break. Have you ever lost money in the stock market? Maybe you heard or saw a comment on YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, or another social platform. Or maybe you just received bad advice from a friend. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Most people lose money in the stock market because they make decisions based on emotions. What if you could remove emotions from investing? What if you could make consistent returns in the stock market based solely on logic? And what if there's a software that handled that logic for you? Introducing Ticker, a platform that helps you manage your own investments with confidence. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.com. That's T-Y-K-R.com. Again, ticker.com. 
I, I like the nice round numbers there as we provided the example of a million, what that would look like. Um, I want to talk about the tax advantages here. Let's say you're a business owner and you sell a business. I, I was actually, I was, I was talking to my banker the other day and he, he gave an example of, uh, somebody who was in the healthcare space and it was like some, um, supplement sold it for like a couple million dollars. And of course, here in the States, you can face a big tax event, capital gains, which is over 40%, uh, something like that, right? You know, how do you find a vehicle to avoid the tax payments? And I know real estate is one of those. So let's say that same business owner sold the business for 2 million. Could they put that 2 million into your investment to avoid a tax event? They could. So interesting question you bring up. So first, if, if a part of that sale was attributed to a real estate, if they own their building or something like that, mm-hmm. they can essentially roll that over to another investment, like yep. one of our projects, and shelter that tax. The other thing we work a lot with is there's a very specific trust structure that if you retitle your business or your property before the sale, it shelters those gains as well and opens up the doors for you to invest in essentially anything. So we work with clients quite a bit on that because one, you're saving the 40% from the sale. Yep. And then two, you're going into a very tax efficient vehicle going forward. Right? right. So it's almost, you know, tax savings on top of tax savings. And that's why you see, you know, Mr. Trump doesn't pay much in taxes and people like right. that that have been very public about their, their tax returns or lack thereof. That's why. Um, yeah. So, yeah. There's some pretty creative, unique things you can do. Um, that trust structure, even embedded capital gains, is mm-hmm. a, it's a very interesting way to to kind of free up some some extra dollars that would go to Uncle Sam. Yes, ab- absolutely. I know, you know, especially individuals if they sell a property and make a big gain, or they sell a business. You know, that's the big concern. The immediate concern is what do I pay in taxes now? What, how much of this is Uncle Sam taking from me? And, and your business model, I really like because you can help shelter that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's a, awesome. it's a big deal. You know, that was one of the things I looked for is, you know, we've all heard it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Yeah. It's, a lot of people say it. Nobody really does anything in, in practice to, to do that. Right. Right. So right. absolutely. Um, yep. Combining some of those things together really makes a big difference. Yep. Um, I'd like to talk about the private business uh, investment. Now, you don't have yeah. to share the name. If you want to, you can certainly do that. But what kind of businesses do you look at investing in? So this to me is pretty exciting. Plus, I think there's so much opportunity here with the baby boomer generation, you know, transitioning or looking for an exit strategy. So to answer your question, again, my model is I find people or companies that are very good at what they do. I partner with them to bring capital to them so they can grow faster, have more opportunity. But also in turn, I get to offer what they're doing to my investor database. Right. So I've partnered with a firm, had an outstanding track record of buying these, um, I wouldn't even say mom and pop businesses. I would say a good business that's maybe a little bit smaller than something that a private equity firm would be kind of knocking on their door already. You know, the guy that's built his widget for 30 years and did that really well usually doing revenue of one to maybe 10 million, but there's room to improve, right? Maybe he, you know, he can add um, operations, marketing and sales to substantially grow that business, but either doesn't want to, or doesn't have to, because he's comfortable and he's just ready to retire and make a transition, which creates opportunity. Sure. That's really where we focus on that size business. Look at anything 
Um, they're pretty much industry agnostic other than service. So restaurants, bars, we don't get into that, you know, but we, I'll give you an example. We just bought what looked like a brick and mortar. Um, they called it a mailbox business. So if you didn't want to go to the post office, you could have your mailbox at one of these locations. What it really was, if you incorporated a business in the state of Nevada for its tax advantages, you need a physical address. So they had about 1,500 clients that were using this location for that, for their business address. And they scanned the mail in, send it to the business owner, you know, business owner responds, says, keep this, throw this, forward this, whatever. Um, Pretty simple business, but it's infinitely scalable. It was miscoded wrong from the business sale. We were negotiating an excellent price below what they're asking for. So we bought that for about three times the free cash flow. Mm -hmm. We'll have that cash flow doubled in about six months. Wow. And even if we just turned it back around for sale, just by coding it properly and professionalizing the business, we would sell at a five to seven times multiple of the cash wow. flow. So if you think through that, right? So we've doubled that cash flow. So we can yep. essentially sell for double. And then we're going to two X on top of that if we just sold it at five, right? So that's, yep. that's a home run, you know, for a small piece of somebody's portfolio. Of course, there's risks involved with that, but these are companies that have sure. been in business 20, 30 years. We're not looking at a startup business or a right like that. So, yeah, and for our audience here, real quick, is uh, from my perspective, you can you can speak over me if I'm wrong, but PDE uh, private equity businesses I look at come in and buy the whole business with the goal to turn it around and whether two, three, five, ten years sell it for a big multiple thereafter. Whereas venture capital is more investing in a business, not buying the whole business, just investing in, latching on to the growth and not joining the team, but they're pretty much helping fuel the business ongoing so everybody yeah. wins. So yeah. your your private equity model, I like it. Like you could, let's say it's a hundred grand investment and you can double the free cash flow in a year or six months, you said. Six, we'll say a in year or less. Case, yeah, but say a yeah. year, sure. Yep. Yeah. And then you want to, sell it for a multiple on, you know, between, instead of three, it'd be five to seven X, something like that. So that hundred grand could essentially turn into two to 400 grand in just a few years. Yeah. We gave ourselves a three-year time frame. We're going to be well ahead of that. Um, Wow. It's just, it's just seeing opportunities in the marketplace. It's too big for a, you know, a lot of individuals that want to buy it, but it's too small for traditional private equity. Yep. So we scale it up. So it's on the radar of traditional private equity and that's our natural exit strategy. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, the numbers are substantial and the model is certainly proven to me. The most important part is the business is already proven, yep. you know, throwing some sales and marketing on now these days, what you can do with, you know, social media and all the other channels you have to reach a bigger yeah. audience. It's, it's outstanding. So that's, that's yeah. awesome. Fun. And what is the minimum investment dollar for that that vehicle? Usually about the same. So there'd be okay. either fifty thousand or a hundred thousand, depending on the size of the raise. Typically, got yeah. it. Okay. Yep. And what do you do about the operator? Like typically with a venture capital, you know, the the VC is investing in the team and and the yeah. leadership because they're staying. PDE, it's different. It, you can come in, you can buy out the business, and then that operator, that leader could go somewhere else. How do yeah. you, how do you run the business then? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I would say we're kind of a, maybe like a weird hybrid model in between the two. So oftentimes mm-hmm. we are, um, we're training somebody up as an operator. Okay. 
that, you know, maybe was probably in their nine to five and wanted some ownership and Hmm. a way to get out of that kind of rat race of working for somebody else. Um, and that's what we did in that case of that business. Sure. Great educated guy, MBA, Mm -hmm. um, you know, educated, was working in a nine to five job for somebody else. The the guys that run this company, bring him in, teach him all their processes, systems, how to run a business, their model. They still oversee it day to day, but he's the boots on the ground. And then usually we'll work out a deal with the the former owner to stay on for a period of time or at a minimum be a consultant to the company. So we have a, a one to two year window of some some history there yeah. to make sure we have a smooth transition. Yeah, but we're usually putting somebody trained boots on the ground from our side of it and combining the former management, even yeah. if it's a key number two person or whatever that may be. Yeah. And how rigorous is your talent search process? The reason I ask that, I'm going to tell a, a really quick fun story here. I was having a beer with somebody about two weeks ago and he's talking about a uh, a guy who's in the private equity space, and he he was he identified a guy who he thought was a great leader. He was same situation, working the corporate job, great experience, MBA, although not necessary, is nice to have. Sure. And he's going to bring this guy on to help run this investment and take a small percentage. But the guy, it was a manufacturing company. And the guy did not want to be on site. He wanted to continue working from home. And in this private equity guy was like, nope, this is this is a yeah. no-go because this is manufacturing. You got to be on site monitoring the processes, monitoring the people. It's not a tech business that you can run globally. Um, kind of like Ticker, which is right. a global tech company. But but yeah, he said goodbye to him. So in your case, finding those right people, I'm sure that's not an easy process. You know, it's not, but the way I mean they they're actively marketing. Today, I should say we, I guess, actively market for those people, you know, the 30 to 40 year old to 50 year old that really wants, you know, some freedom, the ability to kind of write their own ticket. Then if they, they reach out and want to apply and come into the education side of the program, they're essentially doing a mentorship for on average about a year, different businesses, um, role, you know, learning the systems, the processes, the role plays, the, all of that. And they have to be boots on the ground. Yeah. There's no, we get those people all the time. Sure. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stay I'll, in my cushy home here in Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. I'll do a zoom once a day for you guys. No, that's uh, uh-uh. you have to be committed enough to pick up your life and, and go if we're going to give you that opportunity. Cause we give them ownership in the company and you know, sure. it's a, uh, it's a good win win all the way around, but that's, yeah, I mean, you got to go through a lot of people to find the right ones, but, but sure. it works. Yep. Yeah. And when somebody, if they were to come and show interest in investing with you, um, do you have like a, is it like a risk tolerance or maybe a preference to say, Hey, you're, you're better suited for the real estate Avenue or you're better suited for the small business yep. or doesn't it matter? No, it does. It certainly does. And again, even with the real estate and the, what I call our private equity, mm-hmm. um, you know, certain amounts of that are appropriate for certain people as well. So the way the process works, if you go to our website, Cornell Capital Holdings, holdingswithanest.com, you can sign up to be in our investor network. Either myself or my team are going to directly reach out to you. And you fill out kind of a KYC, know your client form when you're coming in, mm-hmm. um, which is just a starting point. We just want to have a conversation and kind of build that relationship and really understand, you know, why are you reaching out? Why are you interested? What your experience has been, uh, good and bad, you know, to really kind of see where to your point, where do you fit in? You know, what are the right opportunities? I think that's a unique part is that we can customize all of this. 
You know, we have different offerings that fit all shapes and sizes. So um, it really becomes a more personal touch type situation from, you know, the time that you reach out to the time that we connect with you on the phone and get to know you a little bit. And with the the business investments, I assume it's the same situation as you'd make that investment. Let's say it's hundred K you would expect some kind of return, whether it's every quarter, every year, right. To create some kind of cash flow for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because the unique thing, my old world, private equity, you weren't getting any return until the end. That was turned around. The payout. The difference of this the reason I gravitated towards these guys and the way I thought of it was I had so many clients that had such a great business, but didn't have an exit strategy or weren't big enough. Right. But just, you know, cash flowing machines, right. All of these businesses that we enter into this type of arrangement are, are cash flowing at a minimum 20%, ideally 30. So there's plenty of free cash flow to pay. Again, I structured it the same way as our real estate. 10% annually, chopped up, paid out monthly. Yep. Um, so you're getting a, a return from day one, essentially, as we continue to grow and scale. And the rest of the free cash flow goes back into the business to grow it. So yes. it works pretty well. And then, you know, like, like the sell of the business, that that becomes really exciting. Like real estate sales, I, I, I find that interesting, but I know you've got the right business and it's it's moving at the right velocity. You, you can make a pretty nice multiple depending on the business. Absolutely. That's yeah. why it's very key. You know, it's not to discredit all the the multifamily or, you know, any sure. of the real estate developers that I work with. Right. But, you know, it's really an art to, um, to grow and scale the business is one thing, but then to professionalize it and take it to sale the yeah. right way. I've seen it done the wrong way. lots of times to do it the right way. makes a huge difference to the bottom line. That's for sure. You know, it's not sure. just the cap rate, like a real estate, right? There's not a lot of negotiation there. It's pretty much market rate for whatever, wherever the market's at, you know, the business is different. So yeah, great point. Before we jump into the rapid fire round, was there a question that I should have asked, but did not ask? It's one of my favorite questions to ask. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I think, you know, I think if I kind of look back and summarize what we talked about, what really seems to gravitate with the 2,700, 2,800 people that have come into our network now, the whole notion of, you know, let me buy your time back now and replace your income first with some consistency. I think the the question might be, you know, what's the real value of that? The peace of mind that comes with understanding what you own and why you own it has been to me one of the biggest game changers I've seen in the, you know, the mental accounting of the investments with with my new clients here. So sure. um, but other than that, I think we we hit hit a lot of corners it. of that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, I I really appreciate this conversation because I know there's a lot of investors in our our network that Yes, they want to get into the stock market and they want to manage their own investments with its whether like I use TD Ameritrade, a lot of customers sure. in the States use TD or Robinhood yep. or E-Trade. But then we've got customers all over the globe, too. But these people want to find other investments that produce that ongoing revenue stream and and stocks are not always the best for that. You want to you want to be thinking the long term with those and that compound That's interest right. is going to look great someday. But if you want that reoccurring so you can go in and go enjoy the hobbies you want to enjoy in life, um, your model is a great fit. I'm, I've been, you can't see the whole video here, listeners, but uh, I've been grinning ear to ear. This is really, really enticing. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. It's fun. <laughs> it's nice to tell a different story. And you're right. I mean, these fit in. There's a lot of information on stocks and bonds out there and TD and, you know, the Robin Hoods of the world. They've done great giving you free advice. 
right? Yeah. I think the whole advisor model is going to change, in my opinion, over the next five to 10 years. Yes. If you're not digging in and doing the research and you know, really working on behalf of your client, then yep. what's the value of that advisory fee that you pay? No um, kidding. So, yeah. you know, hopefully we add a little bit of value and do it in a unique way and cool. bring some, some advantages there. So let's dive into the rapid fire round. This is the part of the episode where we get to find out who Dana really is. Let's do it, man. Let's All right. Do it. So if you can try to answer each question in 15 seconds or less. You ready? Let's go. All right. What's your favorite podcast? Uh, right now at my lap. Okay. Um, next question, a recent book you read and would recommend. Um, interesting one. I, I'm currently reading from Napoleon Hill, um, the book that he references the devil. So he, he kind of makes a reference point of the devil being, you know, the rest of the world and how that fits in. It's not one of his, you know, it's not the one and it's not think and grow rich, but it's sure. It's a very interesting book. Hmm. Um, some interesting points he makes in there. So I would, I would challenge you to take a look at that one. All right. I'll add it to the list. Um, what is your favorite movie? Uh, Step Brothers. All right. That's one I've watched probably a thousand <laughs> times. Never gets old. My all-time favorite comedy, actually. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> Could probably quote scenes for the next hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Next question here. What is the best investment advice you ever received? Best investment advice? Um I think this is something that that's always kind of stood out just purely from investment advice. And it kind of falls in line with my whole, I guess, thesis, right? But I had a very senior advisor a long time ago explain to me investing is like a, a cake, right? There's different layers that go into the cake. So one, you can look at it from if you don't understand all the layers, you probably shouldn't eat the cake. And then from two, finding value, if you want to go down through the layers, if that makes sense, you can find a supply chain to benefit, you know, furthermore of, you know, example mm -hmm. of if you like Tesla, who does Tesla do business with, right? How are they going to complement each other? Right. So he kind of looked at it from two different ways. I always thought that was kind of a unique way to, to look at things. That's smart. Yeah. Let's flip that equation. What is the worst investment advice you ever received? <laughs> the worst advice I've ever heard given would be, um, you know, the, the very generic these things happen. It's a typical market cycle. Don't worry about it. Hang in there. Hmm. You know, there's some truth in that. But again, if you don't know what you own and why you own it, you can't expect to know how to react yes. when things happen. Right. That's why I say you need to dig a little bit deeper there. Yes. That great point. Like, like, cause we, you know, like right now the key is not to worry and to keep buying, but the important thing is buy the businesses, you know, you know, you what they do. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're reacting from a place of fear and uncertainty. That yeah. doesn't, that doesn't help you. It, exactly. You're kind of driving blind. You know, you invested in random stocks or random companies. You have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. If they go down, you don't know if they're going back up. That's a big deal. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. And last question here is the time machine question. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit? And what would you say? Mm, great question, man. Um, I'd go back pretty young. I mean, I think my, I think my advice would be question everything. And I would probably say, you know, I'd be looking at myself as a high school kid, right? Don't just follow and do things because that's the way they're supposed to be done. Doesn't mean you can't do it that way, but very similar to my thoughts on investing, make sure you know why and what right. that means before you do it. So, right. Right. On. You know, that's what I got. Right. I'll turn it over to you. Where can the audience reach you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, quite simply, our website, Cornell Capital Holdings with an S.com. 
my Instagram is at Dana Cornell three, the number three right there. My email is Dana at Cornell capital holdings.com. So yeah, reach out. I'd love to have a conversation. If I can help you or anybody in the audience, you know, we're an open book. So sure. Sure. I appreciate you having me on. This has been fun. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Really enjoyed hearing your background as well as yeah, these alternative investment ideas. Great episode. Absolutely appreciate it. All right. Same here. All right. See you, Dana. Bye-bye. Hey, I just want to say thanks for checking out this podcast. I know your time is valuable and there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to. So thanks for taking the time to listen to my guest's story. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, could you head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review? That would be much appreciated. Thank you. And last but not least, on this podcast, uh, some episodes we do talk about stocks. And please keep in mind, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So if you did hear any buy or sell recommendations, please don't make those decisions based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks a lot. See ya. See ya.